As you know, if you uh, have been with us through the summer, we've been going through a nuts and bolts series, and each of the pastors has been taking kind of their own track uh, to run on. And so Brent wrapped up his track last week. I'm going to wrap up my track this week, and Pastor David will wrap up his track next week, and then we'll be back uh, into Matthew starting in chapter 14 here in a couple weeks. Uh, The track I've been running on has had to do with uh, the church. And, and, and all these are online if you've missed any of them, and I would encourage you, if you have missed any of them, to go back and uh, catch up on, on what's been going on this summer because it's been, uh, each track I think has been really, uh, really helpful. Um, I started with uh, talking about how the church was formed. And if you were here for that, you remember we, we have kind of this working definition of the church uh, that I presented to you, and it is this, that the church is comprised of people who have been chosen by God who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, why, how the church came to be and why it exists, but, but kind of from the outset uh, this summer, that, that's what we started with. Um, and then we talked about how the church is organized. We talked about how the church is organized with a defined membership, a qualified leadership, and intentional gathering. We talked about that, that if you are a Christian, you are a member of the church. You belong to, to the church universal uh, as, as a follower of Christ. Uh, but also, uh, you should belong to a local church as well as a follower of Christ. And, and if you don't, uh, you're, you're missing out. You're missing out on what, what God has instituted in your life to be of benefit and of help to you. Uh, we talked about how you know, the church was organized under the leadership of elders and deacons, uh, and that we do have uh, purpose in our gatherings. As, you know, our, our big announcements today, we, there's a lot going on, and, and all of our gatherings, not just the Sunday gathering, but all of the gatherings that we have uh, incorporated into our church are intentional and are designed to be of benefit and of help to you in your walk with Christ. Uh, then we talked about specifically the church gathered, and we talked about the DNA of the church. DNA, as you know, it's the building block uh, of our lives, the genetic code that determines the characteristics of a thing. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the church has a DNA. The church has a building block uh, in it instituted by God, and we know that, that if something happens to DNA, then whatever the thing is that it's building is altered, right? And so the church has DNA, and, and our DNA is that, that we gather and that we're involved in one another's lives. And our DNA, especially here on a Sunday morning, is, is that there's intent behind everything that we do. We learn theology, not only from the preaching, but from the songs that we sing. Right? We get to, to share in one another's burdens during sharing time, and we get to, to share in one another's praises during our sharing time. And these things aren't just by happenstance or aren't just a good idea, but they're very intentional and part of the DNA of our church. And today we're going to talk about, even in its weirdness, that the church will be preserved. The church is going to make it to the end. The church, even with its flaws, is instituted by Christ, and He died and He gave His life for the church. A pastor that I listened to once said that it's a shameful thing to be indifferent towards the thing that Christ loves the most. And we all have our experiences with the church, and, and some of us have been hurt by the church. And you know what? The church is filled with sinful, flawed, broken people. And, this, and things are, are going to happen, right? But, but even in the midst of it, Christ died for and gave his life 
for the church. One of the beautiful things about the church is that it is indeed full of flawed and broken people because it's in our brokenness where we see redemption displayed most fully, right? It's an absolute beautiful thing. At the same time, the most problematic thing about the church is that it's filled with broken and sinful people because it's in our brokenness and in our flaws where we see the ill effects of sin. And and we see these things happening at the same time, right? We see God's redemption on display in our brokenness, but we also see the ill effects of our brokenness on display as well. R.C. Sproul said this about the church. I'm going to tell you, brace yourself because this, this is kind of a brutal quote from R.C. Sproul. He's, he's kind of a hero of the faith, no longer with us, but he had this to say about the church. He said that it's been said in times past that the church is the most corrupt institution in the world. Now, that may seem something of an overstatement and an exaggeration, but it can be true depending on how we evaluate corruption. If we simply look at naked evil, then obviously things like organized crime or neo-Nazis may be deemed to be far more corrupt than the church. But if we look at goodness and evil in terms of the sliding scale of moral responsibility, then yes, the church is the most corrupt of institutions. Jesus said, everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required in Luke chapter 12. If we applied this standard to the church, then we would say that the church of all institutions is the institution that has received the most benefits from divine grace. In light of the manifold benefits and endowments of grace that we have received as the church and the corresponding high level of responsibility attending that, we would say, relatively speaking, that the church is corrupt insofar as we all fail to measure up to the responsibility of our calling. Does this make you feel good on a Sunday morning to hear something like that? That's harsh. That, that's harsh, and this, this is coming from a guy that I respect. And, and as I've been kind of chewing on this for a few weeks now, I, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think R.C. Sproul is wrong. Um, you, you know about me that my, my head's buried in headlines all week. I'm a bit of a news junkie, and, and, and I see a lot of news about the church that comes through my headlines that just oftentimes causes me to just shake my head in disbelief and think, how, how in the world do these things happen? I read this week about uh, a church, a well-known church. You'd probably know the church if I told you what it was. Uh, they're, they're having a Mario Brothers Sunday where their stage is all decked out in Mario World, and I don't even know what the correlation to anything it is. But I read that, and I just shake my head and think, why? Why are we doing that? The church seems to be plagued with sex abuse scandals. The SBC just went through a very public thing regarding sex abuse within their ranks. Well-known pastors who are prolific podcasters and prolific authors have been accused of of being bullies, of being being not very pastoral in their personal lives. Um, Pastorpreneur shouldn't even be a term, but it is, where where we commingle the office of pastor and the role of an entrepreneur and, and put somebody in charge of a church and say, go. And it doesn't take much reading in our Bible to know that, like, being a pastor and an entrepreneur are not even in the same realm, but we've kind of created this. We've created, particularly within bigger churches, but, but I think this affects small churches too, and, and entertainment culture, uh, maybe with noble ambition to say, okay, we've got to do things to get people in the door, right? Um, but, but we've just taken it and ran with it to a level that can get kind of crazy, And it doesn't take the reading of these kinds of headlines 
for me to get pretty discouraged at things. I don't know if you're like me, but um, you know, I get discouraged about these, these kinds of things. And that's when I read a statement like what R.C. Sproul wrote and think, okay, maybe, maybe he's on to something here. Maybe, maybe we've gone off the rails to some extent. And then I begin to wonder, what's the church going to look like in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? What's it going to look like if, if we continue on this trajectory of just some of these weird things? But in spite of this, in spite of the church being filled with broken and sinful people, there, there is hope. I don't mean to bring a rain cloud today. and We're going to end on a good note, rest assured. We're not going to end on a rain cloud. But, but there is a hope in the midst of some of these things that just cause us to shake our head and cause us to be discouraged. Way back in the 300s, long before any of us were ever around, there was this council, the Council of Nicaea. Maybe you've heard of that before. If not, you can Google it and find out about the Council of Nicaea. But the Council of Nicaea defined the church with four words in the 300s. I think it was 325 if I remember right. But they defined the church as being one, as being holy, as being Catholic, little c, not big C, and as being apostolic. And I want to take a minute and just kind of think about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and hopefully give us some hope about the church even in its flaws. So the church, first and foremost, according to the Council of Nicaea, is one. The church is unified. The things that divide us in society should not divide us in the church, although sometimes they do because we let it happen. What kind of things divide us in society? And maybe as time goes on, the the divides in society, maybe they're different today than they were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. But what are the things that divide us in society today? We're we're divided in society today based on our views of gender. That's a hot topic these days. We're divided in society based on our views of race. We're divided in society based on our socioeconomic status. That's probably always been a thing that's existed. Sometimes we're divided in society about our vocation. There, there are, you know, low jobs and there are, you know, successful jobs, and, and we divide over these kinds of things. We're especially divided in society today in our politics. Politics has always been a divisive thing, but, but it just seems like that, that we've figured out kind of how to meet in the middle over time, but uh, there's not a lot of meeting in the middle these days, is there? It seems like our politics especially are more polarizing than, than I've ever seen it to be, at least in my lifetime far more polarizing than it's ever used to be. These things in in a unified church, in a church that's one, shouldn't divide us. And one of the beautiful things about the church that I've pointed out over the last few months is that we have a collection of people that might not gather apart from their allegiance to Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Some of you, your paths in life may not cross. You, You may not share the same affinities or the same hobbies. You may not live in the same area of town or what your paths may not cross, but here in the church, we, we have this collection of people that would not otherwise gather apart from their allegiance to Christ. And what a beautiful thing that is. And that we all get along and we all care for one another. Socioeconomic status is not a thing here. It doesn't divide us here. And that, that's a beautiful thing. But, but I think about, you know, politics right now. It's a dividing line within the church. It's a dividing, more, more so than it ever has been. 
since it's a bit of an issue, I feel the need just to mention this. We'll talk in a minute about, about the Catholicity of the church. But this idea of, of a church that's one, it just shoots holes in the commingling of our faith and our politics. It shoots holes in it. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Our politics are not unimportant, but for now it's worth mentioning just that conservatism is not the same thing as Christianity. It's not this, they're, they're not one and the same. More on that in a minute. So the church is one. The church is holy. In other words, the church is different. The church is set apart. And I think we have a lot of churches in the world today that don't look all that different than everyone else or everything else in the world. And as Christians, we're, we're called into holiness. We're called to live in God's way in a broken world that God also happened to create, right? And, and so we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. People should be able to look at a Christian and say, I you know, agree or disagree. I, I know that person's faith because of the way that they live, because they live differently than people that don't have faith. Jesus in John 17, his high priestly prayer, he says, starting in verse 15, as he's praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. Jesus could have prayed a lot of things in this moment, but he didn't pray that, that Christians would be removed from the world. You ever think about why, why we don't just get zapped up to heaven from the moment that we come to faith? There's a reason, and I'll get to that in a minute as well, but there, there's a reason. And Jesus' prayer is not that the Father would take all that belonged to him out of the world right now, but that they would keep them from evil, that they would live holy, that they would live different, that they would live set apart, that they would live in a way that puts their faith on display for the world to know that they're different and to know that they're set apart. And I think we spend a lot of time in the church trying, trying not to be all that different. Because if we're different, that, that tends to rock the boat, right? If we're different, it tends to make waves, and, and we don't want to do that. So, so we, we try kind of hard not to be different, but we're called to be different. We're called to be different. So we're one we're holy, we're Catholic, and this isn't Roman Catholic, this is Catholic in the sense of, of universal, right? The church is universal. Have you ever thought about the church has existed long before you were ever on the planet? Churches existed for 2,000 years. And even before that, God's peep, God has, has had a people from the beginning, right? Long before you and I were just ever a thought in anybody's mind, and Lord willing, the church will exist maybe long after we're gone, and without us, right? The, the church has existed over time and over history and even over geography. Do you realize that there are churches in the other part of the world? That there are churches all over the world. That there are churches down the road. There are churches across the ocean. And they exist apart from us. The church is so much bigger than what's in front of you now. And Lord willing it will continue to exist long after we're gone from this world. And so we're, we're part of something that's so much bigger than just what you see right now. I'm thankful to be a part of what you see right now, but, but the church is so much bigger. So one, 
holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Apostolic, the, the churches were left in the world, sent into the world to proclaim a message. That's the reason that the church exists in the world. And Pastor David, his track has been on this very thing on evangelism, so I'm not going to belabor this point today. But Jesus in His high priestly prayer would continue in John 17, 20, He says, I do not ask only uh, for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. So, so there's a plan that's in place for the church to deliver a message to the world that they may also be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Churches in the world with a mission. Churches in the world with a message. And it's not just a good idea, but, but this is, your, your purpose is, is to invite your friends to church right? So they can come and hear a message. Your purpose in this world is even to deliver that message yourself to the people in your circle of influence. Because the church is apostolic, it means that every Christian in one sense is apostolic as well, is sent into the world with purpose, with a mission, and with a message. And Jesus Himself, as He's praying to the Father, prays for those that would believe through the message that you deliver to them, Think about that. So the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, and the church is apostolic. Matthew 28, 18, a passage we're probably all familiar with, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. I think a lot of times when we read that passage, we focus on the go therefore into the world, which we should focus on. But have you ever noticed kind of the beginning and the end of this passage? Jesus starting out saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Not, not some, not most, but all. And, and not just on earth, but in heaven as well. This is a big statement, if you think about it. And what comes next matters given the setup for the statement, right? I, I'm in control of everything there's in control of, and in light of that, Christian, go into the world and tell people about Christ. But then he ends it by saying that I'm with you always until the end of the age. So, so He owns and controls everything, gives us our mandate, and says, I'm, I'm with you. If you think about it, the, there's no failure to the mandate. As, as, as hard as we might try to bungle it up, there's, there's no failure to the mandate because of the person who's giving the mandate, right? And the message that He tells us is to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He's commanded us. This is the message that He's given us. Earlier I said that, that we've, we've, we're commingling our politics and our faith. The message that's coming out of some churches right now is far more political than it is gospel, right? It's far more political than it is gospel, and it's one of those things that just makes me shake my head. 
There's a belief in the church right now that says something along the lines of, so goes America, so goes the church. And don't get me wrong, love my country, glad to be born where I was born, glad to live where I live, but there's not a correlation between how America goes and how the church goes. America is going to cease to exist one day. Every country in the world is going to cease to exist one day, but the kingdom of God is here for eternity, right? Kingdom of God is here for eternity, and, and when we commingle those messages, we are, whether it's intentional or not, we're creating a false gospel at the end of the day. We're creating a false gospel when we say that our rights are under attack, therefore the church is under attack. Again, I love my rights. I'm glad to have them. But if they go away tomorrow, it has no bearing on who Christ is and what Christ has done. If it becomes illegal to pray in public, it has no bearing on who Christ is or what Christ has done. I hope it doesn't become illegal to pray in public, just as one example. But it has no bearing on the kingdom of God. It has no bearing on the one who has all of the authority that there is to have here on earth and in heaven. He owns it all. He has a plan of redemption that's unfolding. And we're told if we read our Bibles, things are going to get far worse before they get better. We know that's coming, right? We, we don't like to read that part of the Bible, but it's there, and it's true. We see as an example in Acts chapter 9, so, so the story of Paul, right? Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul, Paul was feared as a persecutor of the church. And we see where Paul had an encounter with Christ and his life immediately changed and he became the, the greatest evangelist probably that the church has ever seen. And there's this moment in Acts chapter 9 where they were plotting to kill Paul. And he fled for his life and rather than complaining about his rights being violated, do you know what he did? He, he didn't file a lawsuit against anybody. He didn't work the court system to make it okay to do what he was going to do. He just continued doing what he was doing. There was a moment in Paul's ministry where they had to lower him down in a basket through a window at night because his life was in danger. Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament from prison. Paul wasn't writing his lawyer in prison. Paul was writing the New Testament in prison. And Paul's attitude about it was, yeah, this probably stinks that I'm in prison, but you know what? There are people in prison that need to know Christ, and so I'm here. And I'm going to tell people about Christ in prison. And I'm going to write letters to people about Christ that goes outside of prison. There was a moment in Paul's ministry even where People were so upset at him for doing what he was doing. They, they drug him outside of town and they stoned him. Like they threw rocks at him in an attempt to kill him. And there's some debate whether he actually was dead or if he was just mostly dead. But he got up from whatever his state was. Well, good if you get that reference. Um, he got up from whatever state he was in. And rather than going down the road, he went back to preach to the people that tried to kill him. No complaint about how unfair it was. No complaint about his rights. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
says that they had, they had peace. And, and if you know anything about the book of Acts, if you've ever just a cursory read through the book of Acts, you'll see that the church was persecuted in the book of Acts. But it says here that they had peace. How, how does that, like they were persecuted, and at the same time they had peace. And they weren't shrinking. They were being built up. And I think that it's a direct result of walking in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of the government or not in the fear of, of people. Not in the fear of anything except for the fear of the Lord. And what comes with that is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that the church, it didn't shrink, that it, it multiplied. It multiplied. It multiplied in the midst of their rights being squashed. And, and they, didn't, they didn't go into this thing of, of commingling right, their, their rights and their faith. And again, I love my rights, and I'm thankful for them, and I, and I hope they continue. Love where I live. Big fan of, of America. But, but there's a kingdom to which I have, and you have a greater allegiance, and it's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is here to stay. The kingdom of God is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. So as we think about the church being filled with sinful, flawed, broken people and kind of the mess that we've sort of made throughout time and history. As a matter of fact, I had, I had a conversation with a colleague just a couple of weeks ago uh, who, who would not profess to have any sort of faith at all. Uh, and the conversation was talking about how the church throughout history has done things like horrific things. There have been horrific things done in the name of the church and in the name of Christianity. Right? And, and you can read history to learn some of those things if you're not aware of them. And, and they're not, they weren't wrong in that. And it goes back to what R.C. Sproul said, like, because of what we know, the, the church is, is corrupt. Because we've failed in our, our allegiance to the kingdom that is never going to go away. For some hope here, the church is going to make it to the end because our Bible tells us that the church is going to make it till the end. Even in all of its flaws and even in, in the head-shaking moments, the church is here to stay and it's going to make it till the end. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, who's been less than impressive up to this point, replied. And he said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on heaven shall be loosed, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, some people would say that the rock that Jesus would build his church upon would be Peter himself, and even making connections to modern-day Pope. But the rock that Jesus builds his church upon is the confession that Peter made that you you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. That that's the basis of the church. If Jesus is not the Christ and He's not the Son of the living God, there's no church. 
or if, if there is, it doesn't matter. But because Jesus is the Christ, because He's the Messiah, because He's the Redeemer, He's the Savior, He's the Son of the living God, then the church that He builds, it matters. And the church that He builds, even though full of sinful, flawed, broken people, will not fail. It'll accomplish exactly what He's purposed it to accomplish. The rock of the confession that Jesus is the Christ and that He's the Son of the living God is an immovable rock. And it's the rock upon which the church is built. John chapter 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus, up to this point, had, had just fed a whole bunch of people with one person's lunch, one of, the, one of the miracles that Jesus performed. And Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds, and John 6, starting in 25, it says, when they found him, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you that you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. And then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who has sent me. So they said to Him, Then what sign do we see uh, that we may believe you? What work do you perform? And mind you, Jesus just performed a miracle. Our fathers, Jesus said, ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. We could spend a lot of time just unpacking things that Jesus said there. We don't have time for that today. But, but you see a lot of God's work and not a whole lot of our work in this, right? Jesus is the bread of life given by the Father. The work of God is that we believe. Think about that one for a moment. You ever thought about why you believe, why you have faith? Why are you a Christian? It's not because you were smart enough to figure it out. Not, not knocking anybody's intelligence in saying that, but you're a Christian because God has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. You're a Christian because He's allowed you to see what you need to see in order to have faith. You're a Christian because He's given you faith. It's His work. The work of God is that you believe and that I believe. It's not my work that I believe. It's not your work that you believe. It's His work that you believe. And if it is His work that you believe, you're going to continue to believe because He doesn't fail. If it's my work that I believe, well, my belief might be in jeopardy this afternoon. But it's not. It's His work. It's His work and He doesn't fail. And because it's His work that you believe, this is why the church isn't going to fail, because it's God who builds the church. 
We don't build the church. We, we talk about sometimes in our pastor meetings, it would be easy to turn on the marketing machine. Not, not saying that marketing is good, good or bad in and of itself, but, but at the end of the day, it's not, it's not our job to grow the church. It's, it's our job to follow Christ. And hopefully as we follow Christ, that, that should grow the church, right? But the endeavor is not to, like, it's God's work to grow the church, not our work to grow the church. Because belief is God's work, not ours. Hebrews chapter 12, well, let's back up for a second. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame, of faith as we like to call it. We, we see this group of people, names that we might know, Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Samson and David, who, who did great things in the name of God, some of, kind of the heroes of our faith. We also see in Hebrews 11 a group of people whose, whose names that we don't know. And some of them, we're told, were mighty with the sword and they set armies to flight. Some of them were told that they were sawn in two. And think about that, like to be sawn in two today might, might be a pretty quick effort because we have modern tools and ingenuity to make quick work of something like that. But back then, like it might have been a sharp rock. And it wasn't like it, brutal. Some people were sawn in two for their faith, and, and it says that we're not, the world wasn't even worthy of these people because of their martyrdom for the Christian faith. And then we get into Hebrews 12, and the author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right, the ones who set armies to flight and the ones who were sawn in two, whose names we don't even know, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some people's race is mighty with the sword. Some people's race sawn in two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ, we're told, he, He's the author, so he, He's the writer of, the originator of our faith. And not, not only that, because He's with us till the end of the age, He's the perfecter of our faith. So even, even our Christian growth, whatever you want to call it, like that, that's God's work too. So it's not my work to, to try to be a better me. It's God's work, our sanctification. And I guess in bringing this all up, I, I just... I hope I make it clear that like God, God is doing things. God is responsible for His church. God is responsible for all those that belong to Him. Not any that belong to Him will be lost. Not any, not one single person appointed by the Father given to the Son will be lost because it's the Son who, who has all the authority there is to be had. And it's the Son who, who's with us from beginning to end. And so I hope that we're encouraged by that. I hope that we're encouraged even in all of our flaws and all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness, that God is in our midst in spite of it. God is at work in spite of it. And we belong to this thing that God has instituted that will not fail. How cool is that? Somebody you've probably never heard of, a man named Archibald Brown, he was a successor to Charles Spurgeon if that helps connect it. Maybe give him a little bit of street cred. He says this, 
the church does not rest on any man nor any number of men. And if the day should come when a faithful man will be so scarce that you will have to hunt for him, and there shall be apostasy on the right hand and apostasy on the left, the pillars of the church will give way on every hand, and it seems dark beyond all power of exaggeration. Even in that day, the Lord will say unto His people, I bear the pillars of my church. It's not dependent upon men. What a great quote that is. Even, even when things look as dark as they can look, God bears the pillars of His church. And so in the end, we can rest on the fact that the Christian church is preserved because the Christian is preserved. And the Christian is preserved because Christ preserves both the Christian and the church to which the Christian belongs. And He did so, He secured this preservation with His life, with His death, and with His resurrection. This is all the work of Christ. If you remember, I started this series of four sermons on the church with Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church from the 14th chapter of his first letter where he tells them to strive to excel in building up the church. I'm going to end these four sermons with the same encouragement that you would strive to excel at building up the church because it's something that God has given us. It's something which He's made us a part of. It's something which ultimately He builds, that He sustains, that He preserves, and we get to be a part of it. And so be, be a part of it. And in your being a part of it, strive to excel at building up the church because the church is going to be here until the end, even in the midst of our flaws, even in the midst of our brokenness. And so let's make it our endeavor to put the redemption of Christ on full display as we contend with one another in our brokenness. That's part of how we strive to excel at building up the church. And remember, this, this encouragement coming from the Apostle Paul is from one who spent a good part of his life tearing down the church until he met Christ. And then he built the church perhaps like nobody we've seen apart from Christ himself. And so strive to excel in building up the church because the church is here until the end. Father, we're thankful this morning uh, to be here. We're thankful um, that you love us. We're thankful that you put up with us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our flaws. We're thankful that you continually show us mercy and grace. And I pray that you would help us to be a people that would do exactly that, that we would strive to excel in building up the church. And then as we do so, God, we pray that we would be a beacon of light in our community, that people would be drawn, not necessarily to the church, but they would be drawn to you. And as they're drawn to you, that they would come and find you here in the church. And so, Father, help us uh, in this endeavor that, that we don't always get right, and we pray um, if we could be so bold as to ask that you would continue to add to our number those who are coming to know you um, all the time. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.